Welcome to the Bowers Wilkins Podcast with your host, Seth Snyder and Pete Merduino. How are you doing today, Seth? What's happening, Pete? Doing well. So what do we have on the agenda for today? Uh, today's fun, man. Uh, one of my all-time uh, favorite people at Bowers and Wilkins. His name's Andy Kerr. He's been with us forever uh, on the and engineering side and marketing. Side. I'm going to be talking to him for just about Bowers and Wilkins as a whole, not necessarily about specific technologies, but the actual brand. And uh, yeah, it's a ton of fun. And we're always very lucky whenever we get any FaceTime with Andy. So for him to give us, I know, an extended podcast, this is seriously special. So this is the, this is Andy Kerr, director of product marketing and communication with Bowers and Wilkins. So let's take a listen. Andy, what's happening, man? How you been? I'm great, thank you very much, my friend. It's been uh, obviously weird times at the moment, right? But uh, you know, we're hanging in there, listening to more music than ever, which is obviously one of the great advantages of being at home, right? You have you have more hours. You're not spending that commute time doing goofy stuff like dodging traffic, so you can actually play a few records. Well, 100. I have uh, I've been digging deep into my turntable, which is something I haven't had a chance to do in months. So although that becomes a little bit more uh, challenging with a you know, almost two-year-old running around the house. So yeah, I got to tell you, I I, I I totally remember that time. I had um, for a, a couple of uh, maybe years actually a kind of complete fear factor around my records and my record collection because my little guy discovered the joys of vinyl kind of early, and then he wanted to start spinning, and then we had some calamities. And oh my gosh! So. I had some stupid idealistic. I'm going to put the records where she can reach them, so she can interact with them. 45 seconds into that, I realized that was a terrible idea. Yeah, I'm going to say yes, man. I'm sorry. That was very, very <laughs> definitely not the good plan. Uh, no, no. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I just, we wanted to bring in just to ask you a couple questions and get your take on some of the things. We, we want to make sure that we're able to talk to our Magnolia partners on a, on a more personal level and get their insight. Give you give you some of their give them some of your insights on why we do some of the things we do. So if sure. you so if you were in their position and you're standing in front of a customer who's never heard of this brand before, they don't know what this Bowers and Wilkins brand is. It sounds like a law firm to them. Why? Why? What are some of the things that that customer should know before they buy a pair of Bowers and Wilkins? Okay, so I think we're one of the rare companies that have a kind of distinct philosophy that runs um, continuously over decades. So. Even today, a few of the people that I'm fortunate enough to work with in, in R&D are kind of people who joined when John Bowers was still alive. Um, and I think that, that kind of continuity of approach going right back to the foundation stone of the business is quite unusual. I think as a result of that, we all have a very strong ideal of how things should be done. I mean, a lot of the people who know us will kind of say that we're a bit crazy and maybe that's right. But um if you buy a Bowers and Wilkins product, whatever it is, whatever form it is, whether it's a headphone or a car audio system, or of course the things we're most well known for, which is the loudspeakers, you're going to find the same team with the same outlook and the same approach has worked on the audio of all of those. Uh, and I think that is genuinely quite unusual in the modern world to have that kind of continuity of approach. So you could be listening to your headphones, walking to work or listening into your car audio system, driving to work and listening to your loudspeakers when you get home and they should all have a kind of familial uh, consistent uh, and obviously hopefully highly revealing approach. I think how we actually do what we do is uh, essentially we're pretty obsessive. Uh, we're all kind of OCD, let's be honest. So yeah. <laughs> um, everybody in the world, I think, knows how to make loudspeakers. Everybody in the world understands the basic principles of loudspeaker design. The Bowers and Wilkins difference is that 
we have a complete end-to-end capability so we're kind of holistic in our approach from being able to essentially sketch out an idea at one end of the approach through to complete delivery at the other end from every element along the way and every single detail matters every single element of loudspeaker design contributes to the end result so that's the approach we take you know you look at uh, drive units we're one of the very few loudspeaker companies in the world that designs develops and manufactures its own drive units most other brands don't do that most other brands will buy them from a third party supplier there's nothing wrong with that approach and you know let's be honest that's how a lot of the automotive industry works as well right not everybody makes their own gearboxes um, but we do we make those drive units because we believe they make a difference um, we make our own cabinets we don't buy cabinets from other people we make pretty much as much as we possibly can and we design as much as we possibly can because we believe that way we get to our differentiation and our differentiation is the thing that we call true sound yeah so that's one of the things that i wanted to ask you because when i joined this company years ago um i i was i didn't know that people didn't make their own drivers i assumed the whole speaker was made by the speaker company from top to bottom um but we but then someone informed me within the company that that that's not usually the case. Why do we take the time to make all of our drivers and spend all that time making crossovers? Well, so look, I mean, think about it like this, right? If you were um, trying to make the perfect meal, the perfect meal, um, it's not just how you cook it, it's the quality of the ingredients as well, right? Um, and you know those top-end chefs from the most expensive restaurants, they, they don't just look to buy the best ingredients, they even want to know who's sourcing those ingredients, who actually maybe even is the farmer who grew the ingredients. And I think that's because in any kind of complex process, the more elements there are, the more ways things can go wrong. And the more control you have over those elements, the more you have a better chance of getting to the outcome that you want, right? So in the case of a loudspeaker, if you think about uh, the different constituent elements that make a loudspeaker, you talk about cabinet, you talk about drive units, you talk about signal pathway, what goes into the system, which is the crossover partially it's the crossover so what we want to do is uh, maximize the quality minimize the loss as you know that's the fundamental principle behind true sound if we do more work in designing defining controlling each of those elements we have a more consistent outcome in the end towards the true sound premise now you think about how a loudspeaker is created and think about just a standard two-way let's go a real simple small speaker high frequency and then a bass mid now, at some point or another, the signal has to cross over from one of those cones to another cone. And that's the job of the filter, the electronic crossover. Now, if I'm buying those cones from another supplier, let's say I'm buying one cone from you and I'm buying one cone from a different supplier. I'm having to manage the compromises inherent in your design. Say you're, say you're responsible for the base mid cone. I'm having to manage your compromises. And then I'm managing the compromises from somebody else's tweeter. And then I'm going to try and get those two disparate things to come together to create one cohesive loudspeaker. Yeah. And that's real difficult because I don't necessarily have a complete and full understanding about how each one of those cones behaves. And so what I have to do to put them in place between those two to make it work is a pretty complex crossover circuit with a bunch of components and values that help me kind of moderate out all of those problems to make the two things come together to create one speaker. If I know exactly how each one of those cones behaves, I don't need to do that. Because if I'm responsible for designing and developing both of those cones, I know to a T in every single detail how each part of those two things is going to work. And as a result, I have to do a ton less work to make them work together. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So I can have a much simpler 
crossover with far fewer components and you'll know it because you've looked at it but if you ever look at a Bowers and Wilkins crossover and compare the number of component parts inside it to a typical loudspeaker you'll find that we are in some cases eight nine ten components max <laughs> yeah I think, uh, I think my uh response when I saw it for the first time was that's it where's the rest of it <laughs> yeah yeah but you know what? I mean, there is there is no electrical circuit in the world that was ever improved by having more components in the signal path. That makes sense. That makes sense. You know what I mean? So the fewer component parts you can have, the shorter the signal paths. And also the other reason that that's a great thing to do is it means you can you can drive more value into the, each individual component. You know, we use some pretty damn expensive component parts um, because they do make a difference as well. Right. So. So drive unit design is very much about that. It's about getting the cohesive knit, whether it's a two-way or a three-way with two cones or three cones or four cones, or whatever it might be, having a full understanding of each one of those. That's number one. Number two, well, we like to innovate in drive unit design technology, and we like to treat that as part and parcel of our competitive advantage. If I'm buying a cone from somebody else, well, that means that that person could sell it to three brands or four brands or five brands. You can't buy the continuum cone from anybody else. You know why? Because we make it because it's our technology. So that gives us that, you know, competitive advantage in the space, or at least we like to think it does. So it's about ownership. So one, it's a control thing or an integration thing. The second thing, it's about ownership. And the third thing is about kind of stability and continuity of supply. So you should be able to buy a pair of our loudspeakers and then five years later buy the next pair and kind of track a kind of progression and a, an improvement, but still at the same time, identify that it's from the same family. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And that only comes from kind of the same ingredients being cooked by the same people going back on that recipe. Yeah, like your, you know what I mean? your original point where it's the same people who were there when yeah. John was there. You got it. So if you jump around from one supplier to another supplier to another supplier to another supplier, that's incredibly difficult to achieve. But what happens if, you know, one year I'm buying from you and then you go out of business? I need to get my cones from somebody else. And that's going to change the character and the flavor of my loudspeakers, which is not what we want. No, it's great. It's, uh, yeah, that answers, that, that gives you a, a little bit of insight because it's one of those things that you, it's electronics that changes constantly. I mean, there's probably two new cell phones out this month and it's we get lumped in there because we're in the same stores as, you know, the, the TVs and the washing machines, the dishwashers and the cell phones and computers. But it's a little bit different of approach with with audio because these products tend to last for so long and people keep them for such an extended period of time compared to the other technology in their home. It's nice to know that they do in, uh, when they do choose to invest in a new pair of loudspeakers, um, they're going to be within that same that that same sonic realm that they were before, just obviously improved. You know, what you said that as well, Seth. I think that spot on. That would invest is a great way of looking at it because. Um, we are in a unique category, I think, in consumer electronics. The majority of products that most people buy, I mean, you hit the nail on the head just then, right? But most, most consumer electronics products, they, they, they lose value. They become worthless. How much is that phone in your pocket from five years ago worth today? Oh, don't ask me that. I'm still using the same phone from five years ago. I'm one of those, one of those weirdos. <laughs> Doesn't upgrade their phone every six minutes. <laughs> but, you know... I, I get your point, you know, But it's a, a 100%. But... Loudspeakers don't do that, right? Loudspeakers, um, if they're done right, they, they have a retained value. They last. Um, a, they, they themselves continue working. So unlike a lot of other products, they don't become redundant in four or five years' time. A good loudspeaker from four or five years ago is probably still a good loudspeaker today. It's maybe not the state of the art, but it's probably still good. That's number one. Number two, if you try and sell it, it's probably still got a retained value. I mean, just look at the sort of secondhand values that some of our products still have today. 
Um, and that's great from the point of view of kind of your longevity within the business because it allows the consumer to buy and then to sell and then to upgrade and to kind of move up. But again, if we want to encourage that way of thinking about, about the purchase cycle, one of the things you have to do is make each experience from one to the next to the next be kind of consistent. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And you mentioned like um, a pair of loudspeakers that you've had for four or five years, maybe not be state of the art, but still sound great. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was the Nautilus, which is 27 years and still sound great. So why, why, why it's one of those, why is that speaker even still relevant? I mean, nothing from technology that's 27 years old is still relevant, but that particular speaker still is. What about it makes it Okay, well, I think maybe I'll give you some of the some of the heritage of the product first might be quite useful to understand. So John, um, very sadly, was diagnosed with cancer in the middle of 1987, and he knew he was going to die. And pretty much the last research project that he kind of initiated was this project to create um, a loudspeaker that didn't sound like a loudspeaker. That's a very specific brief, yeah. right? It wasn't about trying to make the biggest sound or the deepest bass or the most you know, powerful dynamics or whatever it was it was try and make it sound real which is the essence of true sound of course to try and make it sound uh not like a loudspeaker playing a sound but for example like a piano reproducing a real piano sound um so uh, the perfect example of that was the was the nautilus it was the kind of the research project that came out of that brief if you like when you look at the design of Nautilus, what it's trying to do is remove the existence of a loudspeaker cabinet. Okay. So the majority of loudspeaker cabinets fundamentally create a character that uh, essentially defines the fact that it's a speaker as opposed to something real. If you want to understand very crudely what I'm talking about, just whilst we're talking, just put your own hand on your own chest and you'll feel your chest cavity moving and vibrating in sympathy in response to the sounds that you're making. The same way you have residences inside a cabinet. You got it, exactly. A loudspeaker cabinet does the same thing. Now, a more affordable loudspeaker cabinet inherently is more, if you like, live acoustically. Um, and as a result, it's more likely to resonate. And as a result, it's more likely to draw attention to itself because it's immediately making a degree of noise, a coloration that makes the ear go, hey, there's a speaker. Now, with a more expensive loudspeaker, we can use more premium materials, more premium processes and in more exotic forms. The perfect example would be the 800 to try and make all of that go away, to make it sound less like a loudspeaker and more like a real instrument really playing in the room or a real human voice or whatever it might be. Now, Nautilus, back in 1993, was our first attempt at essentially trying to solve that same dilemma. If you compare it in form and function to anything else that we were doing at the same time, it was utterly innovative, totally different. And its approach was, what happens if you remove the effect of the cabinet completely from how the drive units operate? Now, real simple thing mechanically, right? If that's the drive unit doing that, and it's generating sound going that way, okay, into the room. So as the drive unit moves and generates sound going that way, it's generating a pressure wave, and then it's going this way, it's generating pressure into the cabinet called the recovery okay. phase. That's the back of the loudspeaker cabinet. Now, the more the cone moves, the more air coming backwards into the cabinet is going to pressurize this yeah. space. If it does it enough, the air starts to hit the back of the cabinet, and then it starts to come backwards this way onto the reverse face of the drive okay. unit. And it starts to influence how the drive unit moves. And that then translates into, A, the drive unit are getting some unwanted drive unit effects and also pressure and energy. So the good sound comes out the front of the driver and the bad sound gets bounced around. 
essentially exactly and what you hear is the sound of a box so the premise with nautilus is what happens if you take the back of the cabinet remember this is the back of the cabinet and you move it away from the back of the drive okay so if you move it away from the back of the drive unit, then it effectively, acoustically, is like the drive unit is hanging in free air rather than being confined inside a box. Okay. Ah, gotcha. Because that, that is one of those things that if you want to get rid of the effects of the cabinet, you could get rid of the effect. You could just get rid of the cabinet, but then, you know, you can't overcome gravity. That doesn't work. because it, it, <laughs> Exactly. Gravity works, right? It's a bitch. You, you've got to have something to kind of hold that thing in place, right? So if you look at some of the very early protos that were being done, um, he was actually effectively uh, experimenting with like a, what's called an open dipole, which is basically okay. just a frame like this with a cone like this and nothing at the back. And that didn't work because you, you do kind of need some form of okay. enclosure to kind of amp to kind of make sound louder. So that's why the system became what it became. Now, each tapering tube varies by length, and it varies by length respective to the size of the drive unit that it houses. So the bigger the drive unit, the more the pressure wave inside the cabinet, therefore the longer the tube needs to be to remove the effect yeah, of the drive. Yeah, that's uh, why your Nautilus shell came in, because I would imagine the tube necessary for the base driver would be have to be long. I think that I think someone told me it was ended up being like fourteen feet to say sixteen feet somewhere in there. I don't know how many meters that is? Well, but... Three three yeah. and a half meters. So uh, yeah, you've got to be comfortably. Uh, I mean, certainly around the twelve foot mark without question. So basically, that's that's kind of that's why it is the shape that it is. So why is it yeah. relevant? Sorry, long long winded answer, but you are um, because it still kind of doesn't sound like any other loudspeaker. There are, let's be clear, I think there are things that the guys like me who work in the acoustic team um, prefer in an 800. I mean, I think, you know, you've heard me say it in the past, right? If you ask me today what I would buy, what I would have, it would yeah. be 800 D3. But that's because, uh, for one thing, it's a more modern design. It has more resolution. But the other thing is it's, um, it's certainly better at certain things. What Nautilus is really good doing still to this day is disappearing. It's kind of the ultimate irony in, in Bowers and Wilkins' design that it's kind of, when it's not working, it's the most visually striking, most arresting, most iconic shape probably in the loudspeaker world. But when it is working, it's not actually in the room. It kind of just disappears. And instead, what you hear is the performance. Yeah, so they, they end up being different. I always tell sales guys that you can, you can buy a brand new, one of those brand new monstrous mid-engine mid -engine Corvettes, or you can buy a 67 LT1. And it's, they're both high performance products, but they're just very different experiences when you get them in your living room. So, so I, I want to ask you one, one other thing because I sometimes get asked this question: Why didn't you put diamond in? Yeah, why haven't we updated the drive units or anything on that? On the so, so Nautilus works also because, um, alongside the fact that the cabinet is the shape that it is and the acoustic form, uh, from a point of view of drive unit design, uh, each drive unit is of the exact same material property. Uh, so if you yeah. think about and also every driving is pistonic so if you think about the other loudspeakers that we do um let's talk about 800 as a perfect example we're pistonic in the high frequency and we're pistonic in the low frequency and then we're flexible yeah. through the mid-range right now there's a reason for doing that if you think about uh the whole available audio frequency of sound i've got trying to use my hands does this help so this is like low frequency down here 20 hertz this is high frequency yeah. up here 20 kilohertz okay now, our loudspeakers essentially, the high frequency is from like 3 to 20, and the low frequency is from like 300 down. 
and pretty much all the rest of it, by which I mean the overwhelming majority, is the flexible yeah. cone covering that whole range. Now, why adopt that approach? Well, because a flexible cone scales really well. So you can have a two-way loudspeaker with a flexible cone. You can have a fairly small loudspeaker with a flexible cone. So if you want like a five-inch two-way, and then in that same range, you want to have a three-way with like a six-inch and, and bass cones, using a flexible cone is the best way to make them all sound. Yeah, it makes sense. That make sense. I already know where you're going with this. When you yes. have four individual drivers of all the same material in the Nautilus, you have a super tweeter, you have a mid-range, you have a bass cone. When they're all pistonic, you don't have to have when they're not when they are pistonic, you need more drivers. It's more you got it exactly to cover the range of the flexible cone, exactly that. That's the point. To cover the range of the flexible cone, you need two pistonic cones. And it drives a four-way configuration. And a four-way configuration is fine, but right. it doesn't scale. You you can't make a speaker that's a five-inch size six oh seven in a four-way. Yeah. Kind of good. That makes sense. Um so so it only works if your approach is that. It's the extreme. And then because it's a four-way, what you can't have, because it's quite complex, is a whole bunch of different approaches to drive unit design itself. So each cone is of the same material property. Unlike, think of an 800 where it's diamond and then it's continuum right. and then it's aerofoil. In a Nautilus, it's aluminium, 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 aluminium. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so um People will say, why didn't you put diamond in it? It's really simple. If we put diamond in the tweeter, we'd have to put diamond in the upper mid-range, diamond in the lower mid-range. And, and all of a sudden, we have a million-dollar speaker. <laughs> you got it. And a diamond <laughs> cone this big, I don't even want to think about how much yeah. that costs. And I sure yeah, as hell... Yeah, no, absolutely. Time. Okay, that makes, uh, that makes sense. Good deal. All right, so you've given us a little bit of uh, insight on how why we do the things the way we do them and you know, some of the older products that we're still making. Um, some some news that I just got from you this morning before we started recording that I wanted to uh, kind of poke you on. What's this Polestar company? I'm not I'm not a huge I'm not a huge car guy, admittedly, but I'm not also not, you know, completely, you know, aloof about them. But I've I never even heard of Polestar before. And apparently we're gonna be in their cars uh, with some of our loudspeakers going forward. Um either run down on, on yeah. Polestar if you can. So I'm I'm the complete flip of that. Story. Yeah, I know. Um, but then I, 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 I have many geeks and under this kind of yeah. Um, so Polestar is uh, is really cool, very interesting brand. So Volvo, um, I know most of the time it's kind of known as a known to be just a kind of sedan brand or a, a you know station wagon brand. But in Europe in particular, it's tried really hard to kind of compete in um, touring car racing and sports racing. So it's trying hard to kind of elevate its image. It had um, a race team that it uh, employed from like the early 2000s called Polestar. And then that turned into a kind of performance tuning brand for Volvo vehicles. So you could buy uh, a regular Volvo sedan, you could take it to your dealer and you could buy the Polestar performance pack, uh, which would improve the performance of the car, make it go faster, make it go through the turns better, whatever. A bit like AMG gotcha. with Mercedes-Benz. What happened in 2015 is, uh, Geely, which is the, the large Chinese brand that owns the Volvo brand, uh, had done a great job of kind of reinvigorating Volvo. I mean, just think, just, just a side point, just think how many more Volvos you see on the road. And today. just the way they look, the Volvos that are coming out today are not the Volvos that I grew up with. Hell no, hell no. So Polestar is now essentially um, founded by Geely, related to Volvo, based in Gothenburg, Sweden. 
Um, they have manufacturing in China, just like Volvo do. But their attempt is to try and produce a kind of premium performance electric brand. So I think probably the kind of most obvious competitor that we feel is Tesla, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so the first vehicle they launched to market to kind of get people's attention is Polestar One. Uh, this is available now. Polestar One is a, it's a hybrid. It's the only hybrid. All subsequent vehicles are fully electric. Um, it, it's a great looking car. It's a beautiful looking car. It looks like um, kind of a, a cross between like a, a really elegant 1960s Volvo Coupe and like some serious muscle car. It's got that kind of stance and that kind of heavy duty thing going on at the back where it looks like it's going to eat you. And it's 600 horsepower plus, 700 foot-pounds plus. Ew. It's quick. Um, uh, yeah, for sure. Um, but it's full Bowser Wilkins audio uh, because, of course, uh, we are the premium audio supplier for Volvo. So great from our perspective, very excited. But I think going forward from there, there'll be more vehicles. So Polestar 2 is a midsize. It's a kind of equivalent to like an Audi yeah. 5 if you know that model. Um, then there's an SUV, Polestar 3 coming up, and then there'll be more vehicles beyond there too. So we are... Um, yeah, we're excited. I mean, it's it's great from our perspective. As you know, we've been kind of growing our business. I think currently we're, believe it or not, in 2026 20, cars, I think, if I recall correctly. Um, I can try and list them out if you want me no, to. No, no, it's one of the things um, that the, our Magnolia partners are really good at. They, they, uh, they know the McLaren and Volvo and BMW and, you know, Maserati benefits. But I, I didn't even know that we would we had opened up this partnership yet. But now that it's, you know, it's a... It's owned by the same people that own Volvo. That makes a little more sense about how, you know, we could get into that car. No, that's awesome. Um, yeah, it's great. So that's good news. Uh, and one of the one, the last things we want to get to, because this is kind of like an intro to our brand. Our guys are always great at telling the brand story of us being in the different studios that we're using on a professional level. Uh, but one of the things that I wanted to get into, since you you were have a little more insight, and you're probably there for the. Um, the beginnings of this uh, of this partnership, how that all the Abbey Road and the Skywalker Sound, how did those partnerships start? Like, where did they get introduced to our brand? Who set that up? All, that whole deal. Like, how long has it been going on? So, long time. Okay. Um, so, uh, wow. So uh, going back to the foundation stone to the company, quite early on, John employed um, a guy who worked at EMI uh, to be on the board of directors of the company. So that's EMI, the recording studios. For those of you who don't know, the Abbey Road Studios used to be called EMI Studios. Um, so um, we were producing versions of product design for the home, but they were kind of semi-related to what you would get in the studio. Anyway, that's where the original DM uh, name, if yeah, you know, DM70. We wanted to play around the office. Yeah, but it's like, yeah, but it's domestic monitor, uh, and a monitor, of course, is a studio speaker. So although we are uh, very much a consumer brand, we clearly had connections to the recording studios even in the early days. And if you look at um, mid seventies models like DM6, they have uh, filters and HF trim and so forth that allow you to do some tweakery a bit like the recording studios kind of like to work with. Anyway, the breakthrough product is nineteen seventy nine. It's the eight hundred one. Uh, so called, by the way, because it's the first model for 1980. A little bit of trivia for you. Um, so 801 is uh, the first loudspeaker that you could say truly was like part consumer, part studio. So it was designed with some input from some of the guys from EMI. It was designed to be able to be used in both applications. And even in like 1980, uh, John Bowers and Steve Rowe, our chief acoustic engineer at the time, 
um, took a pair of 801s up to EMI Studios, as it was then, Abbey Road Studios, as it is now, and um, you know got the guys to try it, to start providing their feedback. So from like 1981, we were shipping speakers uh, okay. to places like Deck. I didn't know it was that. I didn't know it was that uh, the longevity had been there because I, I mentioned like it was you would <laughs> you were there you'd remember. I don't think you were uh, working for us in 1981. <laughs> I wasn't even born yet. <laughs> no, no. You know, I was, I was, I was, re I've read up oh, on it this way. I know the right people. Um, so basically, as the 80s progressed, we was kind of becoming um, more and more heavily embedded with studios as well as home users. Uh, you can go through the mid 90s and it was the same. It was expanding. Um, so sort the of late 90s, we were kind of pretty much everywhere within Abbey Road. The important point is that wasn't what you would call at that time a formal partnership. That was literally they were using the loudspeakers because they liked them. It was yeah. by choice. Do you know what I mean? Um, so if you go in the control room of Studio 2 today, um, you know, they have a pair of 801s that they've had there for, in fact, they had three 801s that they've had there for probably 15 years. One of the interesting things working with studio guys is um, they, they really treat the loudspeaker like a tool. You know, it's, it's a spanner, um, you know, and the, the premise is essentially if the spanner isn't broken, you, know, you don't a wrench, pardon me. If he it, if it, if it isn't broken, then don't change it, you know, so... No, I was, uh, when we when we unveiled 800s, I was at the uh, at Sterling Sound where they also use our product, and some of the guys were listening to some of their old mixes on the new product, and you could see their faces go like, "Wait a second, that's not right." <laughs> it, it takes them a little bit of time to get to the point where they realize that it is correct. It's just their old tool wasn't as precise as the new tool, and they got yeah, yeah. Did they do the like playback to you with? Did they do the playback to you with the? Ah, uh, yeah, that's it. Chris, and Chris, and Chris uh, not not Chris Garinger. It was um, I forget who has those. Uh, he mastered uh, Eagles Hotel California, and for me, Pantera. He mastered Pantera, Far Beyond Driven, and all of the uh, all of my favorite rock albums. What is his name? I'm blanking. Uh, no, he has the five eight oh ones, and I listened to uh, his new recording of. Um, I think it was James Taylor. It was James Taylor. His live recording and multi-channel. It's unbelievably cool. Sounds great. Yeah, yeah. It's it's insane, right? It's insane. So listen, I mean, I think that's the same with with Skywork as well, right? So we we essentially um, we offered a great loudspeaker. Uh, the loudspeaker was taken up really well by by the studio engineer guys, and they kind of organically started using it. Here's one other little trivial thing that's interesting. Uh, the early generation 801s um, were probably one of the first premium loudspeakers that came with a power handling, yeah. power protection circuit. So if you overloaded, they they tripped out. Um, so you didn't blow your speaker. And and engineers like that um, because sometimes they like to be loud, to say the least. Uh, so so protection features were good, uh, as was the general robustness of the model. So it's kind of built. It's built over time. I mean, as I say, I, I spend a bunch of time up there, as I'm sure you know, we've spoken about it enough times. And it still fascinates me when you go around the place and you just see, like I said, you know, 15 year old examples of our products sort of still there. You know, they have all of our new models now. They use um, 800D3s and 805D3s all over the place, but they still have all the old guys. And, and as I say, in the control room in two, they, they just won't give them up. It's it's 3801s. 3801s is near <laughs> yeah. I ask you. It's it's like no, being beaten awesome. up. It's no, it's, a, it's great. We're happy to have them. They are, uh, <laughs> at a bare minimum, great press for whatever we want to uh, sell loudspeakers. <laughs> so it's good. It's like... 
Well, you know what? I mean, it's, the thing I love about it as well, Seth, is it's, it's one of those stories that just keep, it has layers, right? It, you keep peeling it through. So if you talk about music, uh, I mean, you might have seen some of the playlists that we've been putting out recently, you know. There's a ton of new artists. There's a ton of creative new people. I think a lot of people, perhaps mistakenly, um, only ever associate Abbey Road with like uh, Pink yeah. Floyd. Sorry, you might not see that Pink Floyd, or or the Beatles or whatever. And and that's true, but it's not it's not the only story, right? They they are just as connected with modern performers. They're just as connected with, you know, Celeste or Dua Lipa or um, you know, pick your artist. There's lots of more and movies too, like tons. So, and that's exactly so. That's what I'm about to segue onto. You're 100 correct, dude. And that's the next thing. It's, it's the movies. You know, a great example. Okay, it's a very Brit film, but um, 1917, which is one I just don't know how. No many, spoilers. I haven't uh, seen it yet. It's on my sound list. Sound quality, the music. Oh, oh, wow. Okay, must see, must see. So that was all done in um, Studio One, um, which is a massive studio for those of you who don't know. Uh, mixed and monitored and mastered on 800s by um, Simon Rhodes uh, for Thomas Newman. Uh, sounds killer good. Sounds amazing. And um, yeah, that's a big. I was talking about this with a couple of guys the other day. I think it's slated for May on Blu-ray release. If you have any lockdown plans in May, um, I can highly recommend an investment in 1917. And then just whatever you do, when you're going to watch the film, turn the damn phone off. Um, try and persuade your wife to kind of take your kids and do some puzzle or something like that. So that you Oh, absolutely. I have to do uh, research for work. I have to find demonstration content, of course. It's really important. <laughs> That's important, yeah. It's, it's 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 incredible. I mean, I would say it because it's about a British story, but it, I still think it's, in my opinion, up there as one of the greatest. That's films. awesome. I'm excited to see it. The, the trailer stuck me, and I knew it was gonna. I knew it was gonna uh, be a great movie. Uh, but now that I know where it was uh, recorded, I know it's gonna sound great too. So awesome, Andy. That's all I have for you today. Uh, we appreciate you. Anytime we we get with you is always is always fun. So thanks for making the time and to you know set up this little podcast with me. And, I appreciate it. We'll get your words of wisdom out to the guys at Magnolia so they get a little bit more insight on how to sell a better loudspeaker and, more importantly, a balanced broken loudspeaker. So. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. And, and seriously, anytime. Um, it's not like I'm kind of, you know, <laughs> that busy. Well, I am busy, but you know what I'm trying to say. So anytime. Um, I hope everybody stays fit and well. Awesome. We'll talk to you later, Andy. See you all soon, hopefully. Thank you for listening to the Bowers and Wilkins podcast. A special thank you to Andy Kerr for a fantastic interview. Have a great day.